Manislu was the hardest thing I have ever done in my whole life. Not just running, but the hardest thing that I have ever done. There, there's really no rule that I've found that I can apply consistently to every single athlete that I coach over 65. It's really all about coaching the, the athlete and the individual. Why am I doing this? I'm gonna, I am not gonna quit. I'm gonna, you know, I'll die on the trail or I'll get there. I've not died yet, so. One of my favorite quotes about coaching came from uh, Katie Ledecky's coach, Bruce Jemmel. Uh, and he said that we don't do any secret workouts. There's no silver bullet sets. We just focus on doing the simple stuff really well. And that's basically my coaching philosophy in a nutshell. The platform that I, that I have, the purpose for running is that. It gives me the ability to share with other people something that's super important. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'm your host, Dirk Friel. In each episode, we'll sit down with industry experts to discuss coaching methodologies, the latest research, and leading tools for endurance training. Visit trainingpeaks.com for more training and coaching resources. My guests today are Land Heinsberger, who is a coach at Ironworks Multisport, and I also have one of his athletes, David Babbitt, as a guest. I wanted to get David on the show as he is a very rare human being who is pushing the limits of human performance. You see, David is a 75-year-old ultra runner who lives in Nepal. In 2022, David completed the seven-day Manaslu Ultra Trail Race, which covers a total of 122 miles, 35,000 total elevation gain, and tops out at 17,000 feet above sea level. He completed it in 41 hours and was nowhere near being last place. Land is David's coach. And when I heard about this dynamic duo, I knew I had to learn more about both of them and the training practices they've developed over a decade of working together. I hope you enjoy the show. David and Land, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to, to today's chat. So am I. <laughs> All right. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah. I don't know where to start. There's so many, so many questions I have lined up here for you guys. I mean, David, you're, you're a world-class athlete. I, you know, I mean, all the things you've done, you know, I think about a uh, race you did last year, the Manaslu, what was that Manaslu trail race? And it, what was yeah. it, 122 miles, four days, 41 hours, 35,000 vertical feet of climbing. Top oh, no, of no, it was more than nope. that. It was 36,000 feet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a whole lot more than I can do. And on top of that, you, you just turned 75. Is that right? Uh, January 10. Yes. Nice. Well, again, how many folks in the world can do what you do in the mid seventies? I mean, there's, there's just a handful. I mean, seriously, world-class, very rare breed. What? Well, I suppose uh, I, I'll probably run until I until I die, or until land uh, kicks me out. Whatever. So. <laughs> no, no chance of that. <laughs> and land, you're you're half the equation here. You're the guy that kind of orchestrates a lot of this and a lot of this great success that David has had. Uh, land, tell us about um, your coaching business, where you're at, and uh, how did you guys meet? Uh, well, yeah, definitely a, a great backstory there. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, um, David and I connected. Uh, I, I actually uh, went back and just found the email that we got through the Training Peaks Coach Match program from December 2nd, uh, 2013 from Kelly Stoyman. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that was really the, the, the start of the journey. So right up front, actually, I, I just like to thank you and, uh, all the, the, uh, uh, training peaks team, Dirk, for, uh, all that you guys do. Cause, uh, without, uh, without training peaks, without the coach match program, none of this story, uh, would have happened cause that's where it all began. But, uh, yeah, um, I, as far as my coaching business goes, um, I'm that's a, a small town coach. Uh, I live in Campobello, South Carolina, just outside of Greenville. Uh, got a lot of great cycling, a lot of great cyclists around this area, uh, some really good uh, triathletes. So we, we definitely have a thriving uh, uh, triathlon and multi-sport community, cycling community around here. Um, and, yeah, I've uh, uh, been lucky to be able to build up uh, my own coaching business over... Uh, I've been doing this full time for the last 13 years now, um, and uh, I, I was a uh, professional triathlete myself. Uh, also worked for years as an age group swim coach, and uh, I work with a small group of athletes. I've got about 20 athletes on my roster, but at any one time, I'm usually working. You know, I have maybe 10 to 12 athletes uh, active, uh, mostly doing 70.3s and Ironmans, but uh, I also work with uh, some ultra runners. Uh, but as far as David goes, I, I have to say he is uh, pretty much a, a sample size of one. <laughs> He's a unique guy. Uh, it's been uh, amazing working with him. And as far as uh, kicking off my roster, that's never going to happen because I get too much fun and uh, too much enjoyment out of uh, getting to uh, go on these adventures with David from my perspective sitting here at the computer. But uh, I always do keep in mind that David is out there doing the work. I'm just the guy sitting here writing the workouts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, David's the one putting in the hard work and all the miles. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's an amazing experience. And uh, I keep telling David, I'm researching the 100 plus age group records. Uh, so so we, we've got some long term targets. So <laughs> I'm hoping like we're not going to be done for a long time. <laughs> That's awesome. And David, you, there's so much more to you and your story. You're actually calling in from Nepal, where you live. So tell yes. us about how how you how you got to Nepal and why are you uh, why are you living there? Uh, well, this is only an hour long thing. So uh, <laughs> how I got to Nepal, uh, I lived in ten countries multiple times. So uh, wow, I don't even know how to tell you how I got here. Uh, <laughs> I had a year resident in uh, Greece, residency in Greece after my fourth. Uh, after the third duathlon world championship. So I stayed in Spain and uh, I did the Camino de Santiago. I walked that, that's 800 kilometers. And I, I walked with, uh, we hiked, we carried everything uh, on our backs, you know, with our backpacks. And uh, that took us 26 days. There were uh, four of us all together that were together doing that. Then I moved to Greece uh, after that for a year or so. Uh, I don't remember if it was in when I was living in Greece or if I was living in France. France was the next year that I had. So uh, I did a, uh, I saw a group that had this adventure trip to Nepal. And I came to Nepal and did the adventure trip with them. We did uh, whitewater rafting, whitewater kayaking. We did uh, 
uh, jump off a bridge with a rubber band on you on your legs and uh, mountain biking and uh, a bunch of trekking so uh, that's how I the first time I got here and I loved it and uh, I've come back four times to Nepal through through all of the years and uh, so that's how I got here the last time now I'm trying to get a five-year visa here five-year resident visa immigration chief here says that he he's doing everything he can possibly do for me to get that uh, to stay so I'm I'm uh, I'm renting kind of an apartment here uh, in Nepal. I just love where I'm at right now. And it's a, it's a good area to do some training. Uh, land seems to think there's flat areas. And there is one flat area that I do all my <laughs> flat training. <laughs> the rest of it. Is that the runway? I'm, I'm in the foothills uh, of the Himalayan mountains. So uh, there's not a whole lot of flat. So anyway, that's how I got here. Uh, but uh, goodness, and I think I only my career started out in skiing in the sixth grade, and that went through until I was twenty. I even took it in college, and then I did long distance bicycle trips, uh, ride across Nebraska, get the Katy Trail, all kinds of things like that. Uh, and then I did inline skating, uh, and after I was almost killing myself doing inline skating, my my uh, nickname was Crash, and uh, that was because I donated so much of my body skin to pavement and to indoor floors. And after that is when, uh, and I, I busted my kneecap in half. I busted my uh, rib cage, ripped it away from the uh, one of my ribs away from the rib cage, and was told if I have a hard time breathing, I should go uh, immediately to the emergency room because I punctured a lung. And then finally, the thing that ended my ignoble, ignoble uh, inline skating career was I. I smashed my right collarbone and it exploded into four tiny, dragged, yeah, really ragged pieces. And the physician said, if, uh, if I ever broke it again, you wouldn't be able to repair it. I've got a titanium plate and eight tiny screws holding it together. So then I started just to do, I wanted to do running. And I, I, had, I read a quote, uh, a quote, hire people smarter than you. And I think you might know that one. Yeah. So I did. I called Training Peaks. I, I read an article on Training Peaks. Called Training Peaks and uh, said I needed to get a coach. Because I started training myself. I bought a one-size-fits-all book on how to train for a marathon. And in a week and a half, I was almost paralyzed. I, I couldn't walk. My shin splints were so bad I couldn't walk. So that's when I said I need a coach. So I called Training Peaks, told them I needed a coach. 
And they said, okay, we'll call you back tomorrow. And a guy by the name of Dirk <laughs> Friel called me. <laughs> so uh, oh you God. gave me... You gave me three names, and I, I wrote off two of them right away, and uh, I called Land, and Land and I just kind of hit it off. He invited me to come down to his home, and uh, I had a flight to um, St. Thomas. I had to take the president of the company that I worked for to St. Thomas for two weeks. I left a jet there, and then I flew back uh, to South Carolina and went to Land's place, and uh, we trained together kind of for a week, I guess. Uh, and then I went back to St. Thomas, and we've been together ever since. So I love it. I love That's it. That's it. a great without, story. Land told me. <laughs> without Land, What's that, I would not be talking to you. Uh, I, I would be probably uh, <laughs> in a wheelchair somewhere or sitting on a porch or whatever, but – Land has kept me from killing myself. Uh, so it, it's just been an incredible trip for the two of us. <laughs> well, just to jump in real quick and uh, manage expectations a little, I always have to say coaching is a funny job because, well, I mean, at least the kind of people that I work with, I find that I'm always working with people who are much smarter than I am because I coach people who are PhDs and, and doctors and really amazing, uh, highly intelligent people. I may know a little bit of, about training, but they're definitely way smarter than I am. And uh, <laughs> I find that uh, working with guys like David, and I actually, I, I work with several athletes over 65. Yeah, as far as uh, getting David's training started, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was really just a gradual progression. I mean, we, we didn't jump right into to doing ultras. Um, you know, my, my focus always with, with all my athletes is um, trying to, to stay healthy, trying to stay injury-free. Um, and uh, we, we started uh, doing sprint duathlons um, for the first, uh, how many years was that, David? About three or four years? Uh, we, did, we did four years. Yeah, we did four years, and each year I qualified for a uh, world championship team. Uh, we don't have – duathlon didn't have uh, Olympic uh, – they weren't part of the Olympics at all, so they had their own world championships. And uh, so I made – you had to be in the top eight people in national championships in order to qualify for world championships. And so you got me – to the point where I, uh, I started my first year, I finished eighth place, and then I worked it up to finally the third place in my age group in the nation. And uh, so I only joined three of the world championships because one was in Australia, and that was going to cost like 15 grand, and I didn't want to uh, put the money into that. So uh, you got me through three world championships and the worst that i did was probably like 10th in the world and my best that i ever did was eighth in the world in my age group yeah david uh, is definitely multi-sport in uh, every sense of the word <laughs> definite so so how do you go from duathlon to uh to ultras in order to be in duathlons and to be on the u.s team you had to go to u.s nationals in order to do it and I wasn't coming back to the United States at all. 
uh, when I left the United States, I was going to stay abroad. And so I didn't even bring my bike with me. And uh, the first year I was, the first year's residency was in Athens, Greece. So I didn't, I, I couldn't train with a bike there anyway. And so I didn't even bother uh, doing duathlons anymore. So I had to find something else to do. And uh, I went to, uh, uh, I, I had a great park across the street from, I lived on top of a hill in, in Athens. And uh, across the street was this really large, wonderful park with single track trail all through it. And so I just would do running through there, uh, not actually training for anything. Then uh, I met a guy at uh, the manager of a uh, athletic shoe store, and he said, "Hey, we got a we have a trail run this weekend. You want to come?" And so I did that, and uh, so I finished more than in the top half of all the people. I was the oldest guy in the group. I'm always the oldest guy anyway. And uh, so I finished really well there, and I loved it. And so from that point on, I started uh, looking for trail races to do. The Great Wall of China Marathon is not actually a trail, but it's every bit as gnarly as a mountain trail. And so I did that. There were 800 of us. And I finished uh, 176 out of that group. And uh, then I started doing, I did two ultras in Croatia. I did the Petra uh, Desert Marathon. I did, I was 16th out of 60 in that. And then I did uh, uh, a race in Myanmar, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia. I, I did races everywhere, anywhere. I would Google. And then the, uh, the Eiger in Switzerland, right? Yeah, I did the Eiger in Switzerland. That was 51 kilometer. And uh, so any place that looked interesting, I wanted to go do it. And uh, so I did. Uh, and I enjoyed doing all of that. Uh, and, you know, I'll tell you the reason that I do run eventually. Uh, it's, but... We'll wait till later. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's how I was able to change from duathlon to trail running and then from trail running to ultra trail running and from ultra trail running to multi-stage races. Um, Marathon de Saab was, was a marathon the first day, marathon the second day, marathon the third day, and a double marathon on the fourth day. And then you had you had 36 hours to finish the double marathon, and then you had a day off, and then you did an 8K. After the third day, I was, uh, my feet had, my blisters had blisters, and uh, I spent an hour in the uh, medical tent, and they they were trying to, my both my feet were just shredded, and they had to tape them all together tape toes together, and uh, I wear in gingy socks. I couldn't get the socks on. I couldn't get my shoes on. And so after the third day, I had to quit. And uh, at that point, I was five hours ahead of everybody in my age group. 
but uh, I couldn't continue because I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't put my shoes on. Uh, and the temperature was 127 degrees. That's how I ended up in the ultras. And now the, the multi-stage racing is, uh, I did Manislu here in Nepal. That is a, uh, a seven-day stage race. And the people who run that is a uh, Nepal trail running or Nepal trail racing. And they are a top organization. Land and I are training for uh, a 55K that I have in a week, I guess it is. A little, little more than a week. And then I have the uh, Mustang multi-stage race. That's an eight-day straight, uh, eight-stage uh, race. And not quite as much elevation as Manislu, but uh, it's... Uh, Where's that? It's a, that's here in Nepal as well. So uh, the Manislu trail race, uh, it's a high elevation, and it is... Uh, I guess it's arid, whereas Manislu was, uh, we would go through tight, very tight gorges, and uh, there was a lot of trees and everything. So, And then once you got above that, started getting above tree line, you could start seeing, I mean, the mountains were just incredible. That's uh, uh, Himalayas there, so. So that's it, uh, where I'm, my, my race. And after that, I'm not sure what I'll do. Uh, if I'll still be able to stay here in Nepal or uh, go back to China. So. Wow. Well, I'm glad to hear you're human and actually dropped out of a race. Because <laughs> yeah. you keep going and going and going. Land, um, is there any consideration when you coach a guy like David in, in terms of his age you know, or, you know, if you had a 35-year-old and, and David training for the same race, how might they vary? Or, you know, I mean, he just seems like such a superhuman athlete, but are there any considerations at all that you're, you know, um, taking into account? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, th you know, that's something uh, that I have given a lot of thought uh, to because I do coach, like I said a, a little earlier, I, I coach several athletes. Uh, who are over 65. Um, and the thing, well, I mean, first with David's races, the, the races themselves are so rigorous. I just feel like, I mean, the, the, the work is the work and you really have to just build that work capacity. And uh, as far as uh, the, the age, I find so much that um, it, it really just depends entirely on the individual because I there, there's really no rule that I've found that I can apply consistently to every single athlete that I coach over 65. It's really all about coaching the, the athlete and the individual. And that's really what my whole coaching business has always been based on. I've always enjoyed working with a small group of people. Um, you know, I hear stories about people working with like 30 or 40 people at the same time. And I can't imagine, <laughs> I can't imagine keeping it all straight because uh, I, I try to really get to know people. I try to really develop a personal relationship. Um, I try to, to spend a lot of time communicating. Uh, I, I always feel like the, the, the coaching really starts with the, the workouts. Um, it, it really begins there. And the, the real coaching happens with the, the relationship that you that you build with people. Um, 
But um, yeah, as far as um, David's training, um, I, I think um, what we focus on uh, is just trying to do the simple stuff really well. Um, one of my favorite quotes about coaching came from uh, Katie Ledecky's coach, Bruce Jemmel. Uh, and he said that we don't do any secret workouts. There's no silver bullet sets. We just focus on doing the simple stuff really well. And that's basically my coaching philosophy in a nutshell. Um, and with David, um, we do include uh, some strength work. We include some core work, but it's, it's simple stuff. There's no magic formula there. Um, it's just really building uh, strength and stability. Um, but a lot of the work that we do is really just out on the trails. And uh, David is uh, fortunate to be able to, uh, to, to live in a place where uh, and I, I, I do realize that uh, there's limited flat terrain <laughs> around the, uh, the Himalayas, but um, there's a lot, of great, uh, a lot of great trail running. We even sort of have our own shorthand for uh, uh, Babbitt flat or Heinsberger flat. Because <laughs> my, my definition of flat is never quite uh, as, as flat uh, is. Um, so uh, Heinsberger flat basically translates into to hilly. Babbitt flat is, is flat, but basically we have one flat route in, uh, in Pokhara and uh, everything else is all up in the hills. But um, yeah, uh, it's uh, uh, just a, a lot of time on the trails, a lot of time on the hills, um, just basically building up that work capacity and, and putting in, uh, you know, time on the feet, time on the feet, really simple stuff. But David's the guy who goes out and executes it on, on such a, a consistent basis. And he really is to, to, to praise David a little bit. He's meticulous about his training, about his recovery. And maybe, maybe David might even want to touch on that a little bit, because I feel like recovery is a really big part of the equation here. Because uh, David does train at a, a pretty high volume for for any athlete of any age. Uh, on, when uh, David was on the the Camino in Spain, he was putting in twenty hours a week on his feet. Uh, and that's that's a, a, a lot of time. Um, but um, David is so meticulous about what he does in the time between the workouts that I think that's what enables us to to really put in the high volume on such a consistent basis. Yeah, David, can you tell us what your volume looks like now and, and tell us a little more about your recovery secrets? Um, most of my recovery is uh, based on what Rand, Land is telling you, you know, what not to do. And uh, but uh, when I first uh, let me go back here first, when I first started to do uh, inline skate racing, uh, I was doing uh, biking. And uh, I didn't have any coaches for anything. And then I saw a bunch of teenagers on some the modern day uh, inline skate races, uh, skate racing uh, their boots. The old rollerblade things were, you know, like ski boots with wheels on the bottom, essentially. But these kids had these... Uh, specially made for them uh, skates and I saw that and I watched them do pace lines and that said now that's something that I would really enjoy doing uh, I didn't have I since I wasn't doing any racing uh, at this point in duathlons uh, I saw uh, them do that and they talked to me about uh, a race it was called Athens to Atlanta and it was like 50 some miles, I think. 
And I said, whoa, now that sounds something like I would love to do. And uh, so I went ahead and bought $1,500 pair of, of skates and uh, the wheels and all that, you know, with all the good stuff. And I had a whole month to train. So uh, we uh, were, if you did the whole thing, it was over 50 miles. And uh, I thought, well, okay, I'll do 35. I did the shorter one. I did 35 miles. And I had a whole month to train for it anyway. So, uh, and I didn't even know how to skate. So I just watched some YouTube stuff. And I watched these kids do it. And I, and I picked up a lot of stuff from them. And uh, I went down. And uh, I didn't know anything about nutrition. I didn't know anything about hydration. And I didn't have anything to carry any of that. Uh, that was it. I'm just going there and I'm going to skate like mad. Uh, so most of the sports, when I first started, my enthusiasm uh, and my mental attitude towards that uh, discipline was a whole lot stronger than any ability to participate in that discipline. So once I got connected with land, I started learning about, you know, nutrition, hydration, and recovery. Uh, you know, recovery day, you don't go out and you don't, you know, have fun doing whatever else. You have to lay on the couch and, and, you know, try not to eat too much pizza or whatever. So essentially, my recovery then is I would, the nutrition before my workouts was important. Then the workout, during the workout was important. Uh, here, we're, we're dealing with, uh, I'm in spring and the temperatures here are in the 80s now every day. And so I will sweat a bucket of water, uh, if I look at the um, amount that the that uh, my watch says that I that I have, they estimate how much I've done. I lose more than a couple liters of water over an hour or two uh, because of the temperature and the exertion. So I have to then, you know, I have to keep that up with the electrolytes while I'm doing it, especially when I was trying training for. Marathon de Sable. Uh, I needed to, uh, I took an electrolyte tablet every 30 minutes. I drank a liter of water. I'd take a sip every five minutes and it'd be a, uh, at least a liter uh, an hour that I'm drinking. And I had to take in a two to 400 calories every, every hour as well. So I had to carry enough uh, nutrition with me. Uh, so from that, I was able to uh, transfer all of that now into the ultra running. Uh, and so when I'm done with my, my running, uh, I've made sure that I've had enough hydration and enough nutrition. But then I need to have within 30 minutes, the typical within 30 minutes, the right amount of protein uh, and enough carbohydrates, etc., uh, so I do all of that as well. Uh, and then I don't do anything else the rest of the day. Uh, I try not to uh, exert anymore. I live on the third floor, so I have to climb <laughs> three three sets of stairs. 
anyway, so uh, I do as little as I can. I have to, because I don't have a, I don't have a job that I have to go to after I run in the morning kind of thing, and then I have to go to work. I don't have any of that, and so it that helps a lot. Uh, the whole life is is dedicated towards reaching my next goal, uh, and in these cases, it's the ultras. So, for me, it's a it's a do or die kind of thing. You know, it, it's that's the mental attitude. Why am I doing this? I'm gonna. I am not gonna quit. I'm gonna. You know, I'll die on the trail, or I'll get there. I've not died yet. So, uh, anyway, so, so that's essentially the mental part of the running ultras is probably more important than most other parts of the ultra running because. If it gets too hard, and I, you know, after I've climbed thirty thousand feet, and I still have six thousand more feet to climb, uh, you want to give up. Uh, Manaslu was the hardest thing I have ever done in my whole life. Not just running, but the hardest thing that I have ever done, and it was mentally challenging. And uh, out of they could only have 50 people in a race, and it was essentially by invitation. You filled out the registration, you gave them your resume, and then they decided who would be in the race. There were 50 people that started in 47, I think, and I finished 41st out of all the people in the race. Uh, so I, that's probably the worst I've ever finished uh, <laughs> as far as down percentage-wise. I was 25th in the male category and, and first in age group. <laughs> but nice. I, was I was 15 years older than everybody else, so I didn't have any competition there. So, yeah, that's it. So, obviously, David, you love to push yourself, you know, to the limits. Land, that's probably something you have to manage. I mean, you can't simply do that every single day. So sometimes you probably have to hold them back and almost whip them into uh, a, a recovery day. Here's what he does. Well, he puts a limit all, on my heart rate. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So what's that line? I, what do you yeah, do? What are your um, secrets? I, I, <laughs> well, I, I honestly, uh, it, it, this is... Uh, a hundred percent sincerely, I, I believe that one of the most important functions that a coach can serve is to constantly reassure people that it's okay to rest. Because <laughs> I know as an athlete, you know, my, my default setting through all my years was to figure out how far I could push myself and then go further and further and further over the edge. And I, I definitely tipped over the edge into uh, real overtraining uh, on, on more than one occasion during my career. Um, and I, I learned some lessons the hard way. And uh, it, it's something that I really try to pass on to my athletes is that it's okay to listen to your body. It's okay to respect your need to rest because ultimately, what is there in the world that you do better when you're sick, injured, and exhausted? <laughs> and I think a lot of athletes continue to push themselves because they think, you know, 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to somehow get better if I just you know, push myself through this one more workout and they'll ignore injuries, they'll ignore injury, uh, uh, illness. Um, but um, no, I, I honestly feel like uh, trying to reassure people uh, that it's okay to rest and that rest is not only necessary, it's actually a productive part of the training process. Uh, so, so that's very, very important. Um, and as far as David goes, um, I, I don't have to, to do any whipping or anything like that. Uh, David is meticulous about following instructions. I guess that's from, from years and years of, of being a pilot, but I know if I put something down uh, on, on training peaks, it's, it's going to get done to, to the letter. <laughs> so there, there's never any, you know, back and forth or arguments about, you know, uh, I mean, if I put down a rest day and, and, you know, there, there are some people I coach, I was one of these athletes myself, I'll put down a rest day and I'll, you know, I'll see like a, you know, two hour ride pop up or something like that on training peaks. And there are occasions when I need to, you know, have a talk with people and, you know, just say, you know, Hey, you know, those rest days are there for a reason. That's really important. You need that time to rest. You need uh, that time to, to rebuild and recover. But that is something that um, I, I always have to, to praise David for. Whatever's on the schedule, um, whether it's a rest day or whether it's a six-hour hike in the desert, it's, I mean, unless there's a hurricane coming in or something else, David's going to get that done. Are, are you are you getting really good at predicting when he needs the recovery day or are you also waiting and looking at some of the metrics coming through or how he's, you know, his sense of fatigue or any kind of like bad sleep or are you making game day calls or can, are you like really good at predicting uh, a week out when we need the recovery? I, I think it's, it's a little bit of everything that you just mentioned. Um, I mean, I, I do try to schedule the, the training cycles so that we're getting those recovery weeks before the, the wheels fall off. But, um, uh, there are uh, game day adjustments on occasion. That happens very infrequently, though, because David is, is so meticulous about following the, the workouts uh, and about the recovery between the workouts. They're, I mean, in all the 10 years that we've been working together, um, I mean, injuries and, and illness have been very, very infrequent. We've, we've missed very, very few training days. And I think that that's why David has been able to progress so steadily throughout the years is that we've never, I mean, there have been a few days here and there, but we've never had to miss like, you know, a week or, you know, uh, you know, months long blocks of training or something like that, that really derailed the whole season uh, due to, to illness or, or injury. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely, um, I, I always try to plan the, the training cycles, uh, so that we're not getting to that stage where where injury and illness are, are derailing things. Uh, and there's a, a lot of communication. Um, I do follow, uh, you know, the, the, the training metrics on training peaks, uh, very closely. David is meticulous about, uh, uploading and uh, recording his data. Um, but I also keep in mind that, um, you know, there's, stuff that happens in the real world too. You know, I, I, I love training peaks. You know, I look at those, you know, the, the TSS numbers and the, the, the TSB and the ATL numbers every single day. But I also recognize that when you're out on the trails, there's a lot of stress that um, is, is difficult to, to quantify through data as well. So um, yeah, it's, it's definitely all of the, the, the above data uh, and, and a, a whole lot of communication too. Yeah, Dave, David, what do you, 
what's what kind of routine do you like throughout the week you know in terms of like volume versus intensity versus recovery you know monday through through sunday what does that a typical week look like uh, there aren't any typical weeks ah. I, I don't think there are um it depends on obviously on the race um when I was running across the training for Manislu, I was in Spain, uh, running across the Camino, and that was 800, I did more, 880 kilometers, I guess, over, over the whole, the whole Camino. And uh, uh, typically, if you were divided up, it was, you were going to do 10 miles a day kind of thing. Uh, but because the uh, lodging, the albergues, as they're called, they're, the hostels, are not evenly spaced out across, you know, the, and the, the towns and the cities and everything, they, they are not spaced apart. So you had to just figure out how far. And again, uh, I'm running across, I, you're, I think across the Camino, there's about three uh, small mountain ranges. The first one is the Pyrenees, and then the then you go through other very uh, the whole trail is is lumpy, I would say. That's a uh, hilly, and more than just hilly in most places, in many places. So there wasn't anything typical. You just had to do the mileage. Uh, and stay within the parameters. If I could kind of jump in just to say a couple of words about the Camino as well, I think um, I'll I'll jump in in a second. I'm sorry? Oh, I I was actually just going to say that. uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, I think it dropped out for a second, and I thought you were finished with that thought. But uh, I just kind of wanted to add a little bit about the the Camino as as well, because I think it really – it brought together uh, a whole lot of things because, uh, uh, you know, one of those being, you know, David's purpose and, uh, you know, sense of purpose for, for what he does with his, his running, uh, which I think is really important for every athlete to kind of connect with the, uh, the, the why of uh, what you're doing and why you're doing it. But um, also the, the time on the Camino was was very integral uh, for the, uh, the, the stage racing because, uh, Stage races are, are a difficult thing to, to, to train for because you just yeah. have to simply spend so much time on your feet. And if you're doing that on the same routes every single day, it gets pretty monotonous and pretty boring. Um, but with yeah. the Camino, and also this is, you know, if, if I can just kind of get this in there too, there's so much talk about, uh, you know, AI replacing coaches or, you know, why hire a coach when you can just buy a training plan? And I'm not against training plans because they're great. I've got some for sale on uh, Training Peaks myself. And for a lot of athletes, they're a terrific uh, fit. But I think there's always going to be a place for real coaches. And I think David's time on the Camino is a, a perfect example of that because we were literally planning the route every single day. David would run from one village to the next. And then I was literally looking at the maps and we were messaging back and forth planning you know okay what's the next day going to be and the the workout really was the the terrain itself i mean i was looking at uh you know the the uh, profiles um uh and you know looking on google and uh you know uh 
uh, Map My Ride and all these different websites coming up with the information so we could plan, you know, how what the distance was going to be, what the amount of climbing was going to be that day. And that was really, um, I think, a critical part of preparing for, for, for Manaslu because that was where we really developed that and really tested the, the limits of uh, just how much time David could spend on his feet, not for one long day, like, you know, even just running an ultra, but day after day after day, not just for, for one week. It was actually weeks at a time of just going out and literally putting in two or three hours a day on your feet six days a week. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, very inspirational. It makes me want to. Why am I only training twelve hours a week myself? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm I'm twenty two years. Yeah, I'm twenty two years behind you, David. So I want you to give me a little bit of, uh, I guess, your inside scoop secret in terms of like, how can I be as strong as you in a couple decades and keep going past that? What a what kind of, I guess, insights can you pass along to listeners to help us out? Uh, I think there has to be a reason why you do it. It's not just to stay healthy. Um, and the thing with trail running for me, I love being able to go out and just, it's all new, all this terrain is different and et cetera. Uh, and so that's kind of a stimulation, but the purpose for doing what I do uh, is uh, it gives me a platform to be able to, I would say, my uh, favorite song is by a group called Casting Crowns. And uh, the, the thing is called Nobody. The song is called Nobody. And so it's, it says that I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who saved my soul. And with the platform that I that I have, the purpose for running is that it gives me the ability to share with other people something that's super important and uh, they'll listen to you. So if I did it for glory of myself, you know, they, you know, he's just another pompous jerk, uh, but that's not why I'm doing it. So uh, that, I think, is the most important thing that will keep you going and to keep you healthy uh, if you have a real purpose for doing what you're doing. So that goes for anything that you actually do. There has to be a real purpose. And when you want to quit, when the mental part of when you want to quit your body says, okay, I'm done. I can't do anymore. But then your mind has to say, why are you doing this, David? Okay, I'm doing this. So you keep doing it and you, you're able to finish it. Uh, you know, you might be 
totally wiped out by the time you get done. But on a, a multi-stage shape, eh, I got another 15 hours before I have to do it again. So, uh, but if I recover properly and uh, on the, the multi-days that I've done, uh, the uh, we're fed really well. Uh, they have some great food for recovery. Uh, they have some great uh, places where you can uh, do uh, your checkpoints and stuff. You And you're carrying enough of your nutrition yourself. So that'll keep you going as far as that'll go. But you, eventually your legs wear out, but your mind can't stop when your legs quit. Yeah. Wow. That's that's tough to beat. Land, any uh, kind of final words of wisdom, anything you've learned from working with David? <laughs> well, I, I certainly can't add anything to, to what David just said there because uh, uh, that, that was a, a great summation of, uh, of, of everything that's happened uh, so far. But um, no, really, all I can say is that uh, I'm just so grateful um, that I've been able to um, build a coaching business and connect with people like David. I'm grateful for uh, Training Peaks and the Coach Match service that it's helped me to um, to uh, build relationships with uh, with David and so many other athletes that I get to, to work with. Because uh, as a professional athlete, um, I, I always dreamed of having my own coaching business, but at the time, you know, kind of the, the early 2000s, it, it was hard for me to see how I would be able to turn that into a, a real business. And uh, Training Peaks uh, helped me make that happen. It helped me make the connections. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's turned my, my dream of coaching and working with amazing people like David, who keep me inspired uh, every single day. Um, that's that's been able to to. Uh, turn into a reality for me. So I'm, I'm grateful to, to David and I'm grateful to, uh, to you, Dirk, for all that, uh, that you and the, uh, the training peaks team do. Yeah. Thanks guys. I mean, um, you're really the reason why I started training peaks was to bring out the, you know, potential, the best in people. And I really, really appreciate it. And this is just a dream dream come true for myself as well. And, um, I'm going to remember this one for a long time. Thank you guys so much, and uh, good luck. It sounds like you got a race coming up next week, so uh, good luck out there, and uh, you're, you're, you're a huge inspiration for all of us. I, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much for today's talk. Thank you, Dirk. It's been a real Thank pleasure you. and an honor to uh, talk with you. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. Visit trainingpeaks.com for more training and coaching resources.